Hi, welcome to Tab's Two Cents. Today on the show, we have Brian Feraldi. If you don't know Brian, Brian puts out a ton of financial content, and he's a great guide for anybody who's looking to learn more about financial markets or portfolio management or personal investing. Today on the show, Brian and I discuss the psychology of money. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tab's Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Welcome back to the show. Joe, pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. I wanted to get you back on because our, our last episode was awesome. And I think a big focus for that episode was that investing is hard. And what I wanted to talk to you about is just kind of the psychology behind investing and the psychology of money. And and if you don't mind as well, just a, a little introduction for people who, who may not know what you're all about. Uh, sure. I'll start with a quick intro. So my name is Brian Feraldi. I am a, I call myself a financial uh, educator. Uh, I've been investing in the stock market for about uh, just shy of 20 years now. Uh, I graduated from college in 2004 with a degree in business. Despite that, I graduated with essentially zero knowledge about stocks, investing, what the stock market is, uh, how it worked. Um, I My dad gave me a copy of a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad in 2004, and that lit a fuse in me uh, that just um, created an a uh, never-ending thirst for knowledge about all things personal finance, money, um, investing. Uh, I eventually discovered that the stock market was the investing vehicle that best matched my uh, risk tolerance and personality, and I've been studying it intensely uh, ever since. And then about uh, two years ago, uh, I cr- launched a, a book that explains the stock market in extremely simple terms to beginning investors called Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? Yeah, that's amazing. And just on the psychology of money, what do you think was one of the largest hurdles you found when you first started looking into the stock market coming out of school? Uh, There's a tremendous amount of mental hurdles that you have to get over uh, when it comes to investing uh, in in the market. You know, if you're interested in the psychology uh, of money, of course, Morgan Housel's fantastic book called The Psychology of Money is a great place to to read. Uh, But Charlie Munger also has a fantastic talk that he gave that you can found on YouTube, which is called The Psychology of Human Misjudgment. And in that talk, he essentially lists a few dozen biases that all of us are naturally born with that cause us to make bad decisions, uh, things that are innately built into our uh, the hardwiring of our brains that cause us to make bad decisions. While ma- many of them do not de- relate directly to investing, lots of them do. Uh, one uh, example that comes to mind is a uh, bias called loss aversion. What that means is we essentially feel the pain of loss three times stronger than we feel the joy of gain. Uh, what that means, if you if you invest $1,000 into an investment and that, that investment goes to zero, that hurts just as much as it would feel good if that same investment tripled and went to $4,000. Uh, so humans have all kinds of biases built into them like that that naturally make them bad at investing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably accurate. It may even be larger for me. <laughs> I don't know if forever, whatever reason, the losses just hurt more than the gains feel nice, I suppose. And I find one thing that can be difficult, especially when you're going through those losses through bear markets, is to maintain conviction in, in your holdings. And 
sometimes, you know, you can, you can get over that with a little more due diligence or, you know, keep up on the company and, and be the earnings. But I wonder if there's any other kind of ways that you've sort of found along your path that help you to maintain conviction in, in bear markets. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a few things do, do help uh, tremendously in, in that regard. Uh, so the, the first thing I'll say is zoom out and just pretend, let's pretend for a second you're not picking individual stocks. You're just investing in the market in general. Uh, I find that if if that's you, which is the investing strategy, I think 99% of people uh, should go, go after, uh, studying market history will help you tremendously uh, to go through uh, the, the next bear market. Uh, if you look back over the course of the 20th century, it is unbelievable the amount of bad things that happened during that time. There was World War I, uh, there was a pandemic, there was the Great Boom followed by the Great Depression, which peaked the trough. I think the stock market fell like 80%. That's the stock market, not an individual uh, stock. And at that time, only like 2% of people owned uh, stocks. That number is much higher today. So if that was to happen uh, again, uh, the wide felt the the panic that would ensue would just be uh, uh un unbelievable but then there was also world war uh world war ii there was the korean war there was the vietnam war there was presidential assassinations and resignations uh there was uh, scandals uh there was multiple financial crises there was a crisis in 2008 there's been bubbles along the way despite all of that the stock market over that period compounded at an average rate of 10% per year when measured over long, long, long uh, periods of time. And it's remarkable how resilient it has been in the face of all of that disaster that has happened um, along, uh, along the way. So when I know that and I study that and I understand that intuitively, just knowing that, uh, th that the stock market has historically always recovered from previous crashes has helped to give me conviction to maintain uh, my investing strategy during the next crisis. But even knowing that um, um, uh, logically and understanding that light logically, it's still hard emotionally to look at a portfolio when it's going down in that moment. Because when your portfolio is crashing, there's typically something horrendous going wrong in the world at the same time, right? And the news is filled with, uh, with negative uh, information. Perhaps you have friends or family members that have lost their jobs at the same time you see that your net worth is, is crumbling and dealing with all that psychological trauma at one time is really hard. Uh, but I do find that studying psychology and market history can help tremendously. Yeah, absolutely. And studying it, and I also think living through it, if you can, um, if you can get a little bit of money and put it in the market, nothing that's going to obviously hurt you financially if you lose it, but you, you feel that money and you, you feel the pain when it goes up and you feel the joy when it, or sorry, the pain when it goes down, the joy when it goes up. And I think that because I'm sort of in this world and I, I study finances fairly often and market cycles and whatnot, something that I struggle with is FOMO. And the, the problem isn't necessarily FOMO when stocks are going up, but FOMO for the recovery when they're going down. And I think, oh, maybe this is you know, a good time to buy because it's low. What if I miss the rebound? And that's just kind of maybe the, you know, opposite FOMO. So most people, I think, probably see a stock go up and say, I want to jump in now on the way up. But either way, FOMO, FOMO is very difficult. And it's something that, you know, everybody deals with, whether it's missing a party or missing a stock investment or, 
you know, whatever, what have you. So I wonder if you talk a little bit about FOMO and what, what you've learned. Yeah, well, it, it's been said that the most important, uh, I mean, I, I love this quote by uh, Oswald Demodoran. He said, uh, forget Buffett, forget Lynch, forget Munger. The most important investor to study thoroughly is yourself. Uh, really knowing your own psychology and how you have reacted uh, historically to events that you see um, is really a powerful thing to know and to understand. How did you behave, act, and feel the last time uh, during 2020 when, when stocks essentially could do no wrong and they just went straight up? And then how did you act, behave, and feel during 2022 when we saw the exact unwinding of that? Your personal behavior and what you did during those periods is an extremely strong indicator of what you will do when those periods inevitably uh, recur in, in into the to the future. So you mentioned that you 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 personally struggle with FOMO of missing out on the recovery when when stocks are going up. Many people have the exact opposite uh, feeling where they miss out. They feel the FOMO when stocks have already gone up, and they see their neighbors and their friends and people on Twitter doing so well uh, with their investments, and they feel feel that. So it's really important to understand that if you feel FOMO, that is a normal human emotion. First off, just um, um, uh, understand that fact, but ask yourself, how have you reacted historically uh, to, to that happening? If you can study your own behavior, uh, what you've done historically, that will really help you to set up your portfolio to minimize uh, the chance of you having a negative event uh, in the future based on your behavior. Yeah, I think that's a, that's some very strong advice. Maybe just sort of focus on how I've handled that in the past and, and for anybody else who's listening, how, how they may have handled FOMO or other various emotions during their investing process and, and just be aware of it. And perhaps there's ways to sort of build around that. And I know that for me, I'm kind of a risk taker. Um, I'm okay with accepting some risk. I wonder if for somebody with that sort of a profile, what do you think a good investment strategy for them is? Or for somebody who is maybe a little bit safer, what do you think they could do to optimize their performance? Yeah, asset allocation. How what what how much money or how much of your portfolio you put into different asset classes uh, really is a wonderful tool that investors can use to really match the returns that they can uh, they can handle uh, with their investing uh, per personality. And there are some guidelines out there that uh, that are useful uh, to use as rough guideposts. Uh, how, however, the the reality is that what any individual person should do with their capital totally depends depends on their specific unique circumstances and their specific unique risk tolerance and their specific unique time horizon more than anything else. Um, broadly speaking, as a generalization, the younger you are, the more time that you will be uh, in the workforce and generating income from yourself, the more risk you can be able to assume. So if you're younger, and it matches your personality, you should aim to have a higher portion of your portfolio into equities. Uh, personally, uh, I have a decades-long time horizon. I have an extremely conservative uh, personal financial situation. So I'm essentially 100% equities, 0% bonds. My personality can handle the, the, the gyrations that occur uh, in my portfolio. Uh, however, if you were 20 years old and the idea of your portfolio going down in a bear market makes you want to throw up, or would cause you to lose sleep at night, you're 
ideal equity exposure might be zero. You might have to be 100% in, in cash or CDs or bonds. Um, and while the returns, your, your returns would certainly suffer uh, if, you, if you did that, if, that would, if, if doing so would cause you to sleep soundly at night, perhaps that is the most ideal uh, portfolio uh, for you. Uh, conversely, uh, the, the conventional wisdom is the, the older you are, the more conservative you should be with your uh, portfolio. But again, it totally depends on your situation. If you're 90 years old, have all the money in the world that you need, and you're investing for your, your kids or your, your grandkids, it can make sense to be 100% in stocks, even if you're 90 uh, years old. Um, so what asset allocation you choose really totally depends on your personal uh, preferences. Yeah, absolutely. And I think preparing yourself mentally for, for what can happen is really big as well. Like, for example, just before this pod, I was out mountain biking with a friend and it rained last night. So the trails are slippery. And before I left, I was like, well, I'm probably going to fall today because these trails are trash. And as a result of a slippery route, I did bail, flipped over the bars, whatever, scraped my knee, no big deal. And I kind of was just laughing about it because I sort of expected that. I just sort of, I knew I was going to fall. I just had hoped that I wouldn't have got injured and I didn't. And I think that leading into the day, knowing that I'm probably going to fall is sort of similar to taking on more risk, knowing that you can lose that money as a result of many different factors. You know, the company can find more competition or they can have bad management decisions. So I wonder if there's anything that you do to help yourself prepare, given that you're 100% equities. Yeah, the, the answer there is uh, diversify. Uh, I, I do a couple of things because what I've learned the hard way is no matter how much research I do up front, no matter my conviction level in any given investment, I can still be wrong. Uh, if you just look at the raw numbers uh, that are out there from this fantastic JP Morgan uh, study, uh, they looked at thousands of stocks and they asked the questions, what percentage of, the, of all stocks outperform the indice over time and what, what percent underperform uh, the, the indice? Prior to that study being published, my guess would have been 50-50. 50% outperform, 50% uh, underperform. Uh, in reality, the actual numbers are closer to 36% outperform and 64% underperform. So knowing that right out of the gate, uh, just based on pure statistics, if you find an investment you have a two-thirds chance of that given investment underperforming and a one-third chance of essentially being right uh, on that stock. Now, that same study also showed that 40% of stocks, 40% of all stocks that are, that are out there will have a catastrophic loss, meaning they will go down by 70% or more and stay down permanently. So 40% of the time, again, just randomly picking stocks, you're going to lose 70% of your money or more uh, permanently. And only about 7 to 10% of the stocks that are out there, so about 1 in 10, those are where all the magic happens. That's where all the multi-baggers live, and the gains from those multi-baggers uh, are literally drag the entire index up. So if you just know that ahead of time, 
that the odds are 40%, you're going to lose 60, uh, you're going to lose 70% or more. Two thirds of the time, you're going to underperform the index. One third of the time, you're going to outperform. And one in 10, you're going to hit a, a mega winner. When, when I learned that, it taught me the value of diversifying and to separate my conviction in a company um, from the allocation uh, that I that I put into it. Uh, so that's thing one. Really understanding those statistics was super eye-opening uh, for me. So, so knowing that and mixing that in with my own personal history of having tremendous conviction in a company, only to see that same company fall by 70% and lose a huge chunk of my investments. Uh, what I do now with my portfolio is I buy, I add to positions in stages over time. So I build up positions slowly uh, in my portfolio. And once a position reaches 3% of my investable assets, that's the number I made for myself, I don't add any more capital uh, to it. At that point, it's up to the company and up to the investment to earn a higher position in my portfolio, surely through appreci appreciation. Uh, doing so allows it so if I have tremendous conviction uh, in a company, and I'm wrong, I'm only risking at most about 3% of my portfolio. And I'm, I'm okay with that, uh, with that allocation. However, if you look today at my portfolio, uh, the number one position that I hold is in Tesla. Uh, Tesla is about 9% of my portfolio today. Not because at the outset, I said I have the most conviction in Tesla, but I, it became my number one position because I bought it and then it went up 50X in value and I didn't sell it. <laughs> so the biggest positions that I have in my portfolio earned their spot there. I didn't force it in there. I think that's a great strategy. And it, it's a good way to resist the FOMO too, as well. But now if there's a company that you have conviction in, would you rebalance it up to 3% if, if it goes under that number? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, if if a company, um, again, it depends on what you mean by conviction. It also depends on the nature uh, of of the business. Uh, so, so the way that I think about that is um, when whenever I find a company, I take it through a checklist uh, that I developed a form for myself. And it checks off a number of different categories, uh, including the financials of the business, uh, the moat of the business, uh, the relationship between the customers, the competitive dynamics of the business, the management team of the business, the company's own operating and execution uh, history, uh, the risks of the business, whether it pays a dividend, et cetera. So I have this big checklist that I made uh, for myself. And at the end of taking a company through this checklist, I get a sense of how high quality this company is and how closely this company matches the criteria that I'm looking for uh, in an investment. So if I come across a company that scores extremely well on my checklist and does, it's like, yes, I, I like damn near everything about this company, uh, I would be willing to allocate a higher portion uh, all the way up to that 3% in my portfolio to that investment because I believe that the risks that I'm along are, are diminished still there, but it's it's a lower percent chance. If I come across a company that I think has tremendous potential, but it's a, it doesn't score as well on my list, perhaps it's unprofitable, uh, perhaps it doesn't have a proven operating history, perhaps it's building its moat, it hasn't developed uh, a moat yet, and I think the, the situation is riskier, uh, I would just allocate less capital to that company uh, up front because I know going in that the chances that I'm wrong are likely to be higher. 
Um, so the more stable, the higher the um, the higher my my comfort level with the, the business is, the more I would allocate it to it at the at the, at the outset. And the the inverse uh, would, would also be uh, true. So if I did if I had a zero percent position in like Microsoft, for example, and I said, ah, oh, I want to be an investor in Microsoft. I mean, Microsoft is one of the biggest, most widest moat, most profitable businesses in the history of the world, right? So I'd have no problem taking a very, a big position, a 3% position in Microsoft right out of the gate because the chances of me being wrong on Microsoft are, are fairly uh, low. But if I found a sub $1 billion company with, that was unprofitable, that I thought could 100X, but man, when was the risk high? I would go with a much lower initial position. Very interesting. And I, I had a, a friend of mine, Simon Handerhan on the other day, and we were discussing kind of our portfolio management and how we build them and, and this and that. And one thing that I commented to him just sort of as we were discussing was that I think my optimal investment strategy for myself is probably about five to 10 years away. And I think that that's just through development and learning. And I wonder, or do, do you feel like this is you found your strategy or are you still tweaking it every now and then? So I'm, I'm 20 years into this and I, I will say that um, the strategy that I've developed is the best one that I've found so far uh, for my personality. However, that checklist that I mentioned to you before, I'm on version three. Uh, of that checklist with creating it, uh, putting it out to a group of investors for, for commenting, uh, thinking through, seeing the results and making tweaks uh, to it. Uh, the same goes with my with my asset allocation uh, strategy. Uh, so I am currently 100% uh, stocks with my portfolio. But one reason for that is historically, ever since I basically started paying attention to investing, bonds have been a terrible place to, to be. Interest rates were so low for so long that all I saw with bonds was risk with no reward. Like it was the exact opposite situation. 2023 is really the first time that I can think of that I'm actually considering adding bonds to my portfolio, uh, simply because they are now yielding a high enough number to make but to make considering uh, putting putting capital uh, to them. Uh, moreover, my 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 net worth is changing over time. My family dynamics are changing over over time. The income that I generate is changing over time. So it would be farcical for me to say that the current strategy that I have is quote unquote the right one that I'll stick forever. So I give myself permission to say this is the best version that I found for myself at this time. But anything is up for changing. Yeah, absolutely. It's always a moving target. And I think what I'm what I'm hoping for me is in, you know, five to 10 years, I'll have something that I think is the best version. And then obviously, I'll, you know, nitpick the details with that. It's interesting with bonds, too, because they're, you know, they're long term investments. And they're easy to to invest in because you know what you're getting for 10 years, say, and you know, who knows if the rates will stay that high for a long time. So I can see why you've been looking at them. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about, I know you you're just come out with your your book with 100 quotes from famous investors. And I wonder, during the process of writing that book, how much of that, how much how many of those quotes do you think are more inclined to review people's psychology, as opposed to technical investing ideas? 
I would say it's 99% psychology and only 1%, maybe even less than that, uh, investing uh, ideas. I mean, to me, a quote that would talk about here's the optimal portfolio strategy or or anything like that like that has little uh, value. I'm not interested in, in capturing and uh, sharing quotes that have like a point in time value. I'm interested in capturing and finding quotes that have timeless uh, content. Content, if you read it uh, today, five years from now, 20 years from now, will still be uh, true. And that those kind of quotes tend to be related to the psychology of investing, the mindset that you need to invest, and timeless principles that work uh, no matter what's happening in, in the world. So yeah, that collection of quotes that you're talking about was really just, um, I, I've been collecting quotes for, for years, and I thought it would be helpful to throw them into a simple uh, ebook. So it's just a collection of the 100 best investing quotes I've ever found. Yeah, and I find that very interesting because these are, you know, these are Buffett and Munger and all of the great investors out there. And really, at the end of the day, if you were to talk to them in a conversation, what you would want to know is their mindset. You've, most likely, if you wouldn't get into a conversation and ask Buffett, what do I buy today? You would say, what did you do that made you so successful over the past however many years that he's been investing? and I, th I just I find that part of it very interesting because I know when I started, I thought that it was going to be a lot more numbers based. You would be, if you could figure out the numbers, you could find a good investment and you could make money on it. But as a result of doing this for, you know, for me, 10 years, not 20 like you, but I, what I've noticed is you need to be able to maintain your strategy and your conviction and also, you know, be durable and, and um, nimble and be able to move around if you need to. So I wonder if, you know, before we end, if you could just go ahead and uh, touch on a couple more psychological findings that you found and maybe just give people a couple tips that they may want to know if they're finding themselves in a position where they're struggling with their investment process. Well, uh, I'm a firm believer. I, I love the stock market. I love studying it. I like looking into SEC filings. I like studying my own psychology. Uh, I like talking to other investors. I like keeping up with companies that, that I own. I just like, I am naturally drawn uh, to, to the stock market, the same, that, the same way that some people are naturally drawn, drawn to basketball or some people are naturally drawn uh, to art. So this is just something that I find and generate tremendous uh, joy, joy from. Uh, I think that I'm weird in that way. And I would say that uh, judging based on an anecdotally, I would say that only about 1% of people that I encounter uh, share my same affinity uh, for the stock market and business um, th that I do. Um, if you are, first off, I'm pretty sure that the people that are listening to this podcast are also in, in that group. Anybody that takes the time to listen to a podcast about investing in the psychology uh, of money is highly likely to be someone that finds tremendous joy uh, from following uh, uh, the market. But if you don't find joy uh, in digging up SEC files, or you don't find joy in research investments, there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, to heck with all of this, I'm going to dollar cost average into broad-based index funds, and that's going to be all of the information I need about investing, and just call it, call it a day, and just make the decision, that's what I'm doing with my money, that's what I'm doing with my capital, and you have eliminated an ungodly number of decisions um, into, into the future. So we, uh, my friend, 
first advice would be only pick stocks, only do uh, what we're talking about doing, or only only follow uh, Buffett or Munger. If you find tremendous joy uh, from the process uh, of, of investing, don't do it simply because you think that you're, there's a, a magic big pot of gold for you, gold for you at the end of the of the rainbow. You should enjoy the pro the process of investing just as much as you would enjoy the proceeds that you get from investing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great advice. And I agree. I think the biggest issue that I have with the stock market is that I never have enough time to look at it more often. And, you know, I think I'm kind of in the same boat. I just find it fascinating to watch the world events affect the market and, and the psychology that people have, even during, as we all know, you and I sit here and we discuss that it's going to return 10% over however long. And yet we still have major sell-offs and we still have all these events and things happening. So with that, I, I just want to say thanks. I think this was a great pod. I want to give you the opportunity to let anybody know where they can find your content, especially your new ebook out there. And uh, yeah, I just want to say thanks again. Oh, thank you for, for having me. Yeah, um, that ebook that you mentioned is completely free. Uh, you can get it on my website, which is just brianferaldi.com backslash quotes. Uh, so if you could share a link to that in the podcast episode, uh, that would be that would be great. Uh, and if you want to connect with me, the simplest place to do so is on Twitter. I'm quite active on that platform. And it's at Brian Feraldi, B-R-I-A-N-F-E-R-O-L-D-I. Awesome. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me, Joe. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show, so do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you. Yeah.